go ahead and grab your uh, copies of the scripture. And um, I, I warned the choir last week at rehearsal to bring a stack, a, a snack, not a stack. Um, the rest of you all, I'm sorry we're not privy to that warning, and your, uh, your warning came too late. But good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Timothy this morning, chapter 4. We have been in a weeks-long series on what it means to be a disciple. Uh, and, and that comes from what is a lot of confusion, we think, about discipleship in, in the church. Um, sometimes, you know, disciples are seen as these super characters in the Bible, these, these superhuman followers of Jesus. Uh, but really, a disciple is so much simpler than that. A disciple comes from the Greek word methetes, and methetes, all it means is follower. One who follows another. And so, so over the course of history, there have been disciples of Jesus. There have been disciples of people like Nostradamus. There have been disciples of people like the Buddha. Simply a follower. But a follower of Jesus is unique and is distinct from all those other kinds of followers because Jesus makes unique claims about himself and who he is. He is not simply an enlightened individual. He's not simply uh, someone who has particular insight into the human condition and what it's like to live in this world. No, Jesus makes the claim that he is man and he is God. He is very man and he is very God. And his claim to deity has significant implications for his followers. Here in 2 Timothy, uh, this is a most appropriate book for a series on discipleship and on disciple-making. Paul's letter here to his young protege is filled with, with affection and instruction, passion and concern. You know, I, I say protege, but, but really Timothy was so much more than a protege. That, that word protege is insufficient to describe the type of relationship that Paul had with young Timothy. It goes far beyond a professional relationship. This is not an apprenticeship. He's not a manager or a pastor or an apostle in training. Now, earlier on in 2 Timothy, Paul refers to Timothy as his beloved child. This beloved child of Paul's, this familial bond, it seems strange to us, but it ought not this feeling of, of being in one family that Paul and Timothy had with each other. This should be the most natural feeling in the world for the people of God, in the church, in the body of Christ. We have, after all, been adopted into one spiritual family. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 1. We are, we are co-heirs with Christ. We are inheritors of Christ's kingdom that he won. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 8. This is one of the reasons why if, if, if you insist on calling me something other than Josh, and most of you don't, thankfully, but if you did, I'd much rather you call me Brother Josh than, than Pastor or, or Reverend or anything else because Pastor, Reverend, that doesn't do justice to the type of bond we have one with another. We are brothers and we are sisters in Christ. This is Paul's second letter to Timothy, his, his final letter to his beloved son in the faith. And it's so helpful because in this and throughout the rest of his writings, we see who Paul is. He, Paul is one who lived a life of transparency before the world that was 
around him. He wasn't, he didn't have any type of faux religiosity. Paul didn't have a, an Instagram account where he was constantly hashtagging blessed, which is a thing, I'm, I believe. Is that, is that correct, young, young, chil- young people? Is that a thing? They were like, whatever, what's Instagram? Instagram's old school now, right? I don't know, okay. I'm getting like blank stares up here. I'm trying to relate. Come on, give me something here. Work with me, okay? This, this apostle to the Gentiles, he was intimately aware of his faults and his failures. Indeed, we see in other of his letters that he rejoiced in his faults and in his failures. He was realistic about what the life of a follower of Jesus looks like, and he was unwaveringly committed to his Lord. Paul, Paul is unique in that his fingerprints are all over the New Testament. There are 27 New Testament books. And I'm going to say that 15 were written by Paul. Most people would say 13, but I don't like to say what most people would say, as uh, most of you who know me have found out by now. We have Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And I'm going to throw in there Luke and Hebrews. I say Luke because Luke was a constant companion of the Apostle Paul. Luke is really Paul's gospel message that was penned by the Apostle Paul. Luke. And then, of course, Hebrews. We have, I, I think that Paul wrote Hebrews. That's not cool these days, but I'm not cool, and so it's, so it's okay. I think that Paul wrote Hebrews, this beautiful exposition of how the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, relates to the New Covenant. Paul, so Paul wrote more than half of the New Testament. He wrote more than half of this second half of the story of God's people. So if you're not intimately acquainted with Paul as a follower of Jesus, you need to be. And you need to become more intimately acquainted with this apostle. His writing, it covers all kinds of different genres. You know, he has a systematic theology that he lays out in his letter to the Romans. He has personal letters like this one to Timothy and his letters to Philemon and Titus. He has letters to the churches that were to be read out. They were circular letters. But his writing is also immensely practical. It is never knowledge for the sake of knowledge. And Paul, in fact, is acutely aware of that danger, of how dangerous knowledge for the sake of knowledge is. He mentions it in chapter 3, verse 7 of 2 Timothy. This is what he says. He speaks of those who are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Constantly learning, but never having that knowledge transform their lives. Never having it flow out of their speech and their actions and their attitudes. Paul understands that this is a debilitating and soul-killing outcome. Knowledge for the sake of knowledge crushes human souls. Knowing the word of God, divorced from applying and living the word of God, is a death sentence. Now I say that, and Paul says that, I think. But Paul also warns us that the Christian life is never less than knowing. We started this series looking at Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul talks about being transformed by the renewing of our what? Mind. That's right. So, so the very basis of all Christian faith, of the Christian life, is not in the heart, it's not in the emotions, it's in the mind. And then that mind which is transformed and renewed leads to a transformed life. It flows out in our emotions and in our actions and in our attitudes and in our 
speech. The Christian life is never less than knowing, but it is certainly far more than knowing. All that being said, we turn now, having looked at the basis of the Christian life and having looked at the, the risk of making disciples last week, we turn now to the rewards of discipleship and of making disciples. And our text this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 18. Paul says this, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for, to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus and Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And at my first defense, no one came to me to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now, Lord, we ask that you would bless the reading and the proclamation of your word and that by your spirit you would write its eternal truths on our heart. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Normally, I would throw out a main point here at the beginning, but instead we're going to save that for, for the end, just because I want to leave you all hanging uh, today. But I want to talk about investment advice. Uh, any of you who, who spent any time with me, you know that I am a financial savant of sorts, right? I'm a guru. If you need investment advice, I'm the guy to talk to. I'm a walking calculator. I'm a ticker tape. No, not, not at all. That's actually. So I, I, I almost called my wife yesterday. I went to, with the kids, two of my children, to get a haircut, right? And of course, they, they tally up the thing and you leave the tip. And of course, the, the, the total's like, you know, whatever, $24.99. And now, I had, I'm putting a $7.50 tip on there, and I have to try and figure out what $24.99 plus $7.50 is. Um, I almost called my wife, but instead I just got my calculator out. But that's, I'm not a fight, so don't ever take financial investment advice from me, okay? But I, I hope and I pray that, that today the investment advice that I give you of a spiritual sort is beneficial for your soul. Warren Buffett says this concerning risk. Risk comes from not knowing what you are doing. Risk comes from not knowing what you are doing. And the point, I think, that Warren Buffett is making is that exposure to, to, to risk and to danger comes from a lack of understanding. It, it's better to go into the situation eyes wide open, knowing all that the situation might entail, 
It's better to do that than to view a potential investment through rose-colored lenses, right? I, I am an emotional sort. I wear my heart on my sleeve, and so I'm, I'm the impulse buyer, which is why I stay away from Amazon and why I try not to look at anything at the, at the checkout aisle. And so I have a tendency to view life and my reality through rose-colored lenses. Warren Buffett says don't do that. You need to go into any situation eyes wide open, and in doing so, you eliminate risk. Because risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. I think Paul understood the principle as well. It's an interesting comparison between Warren Buffett and Paul. I think Warren Buffett is worth somewhere in the realm of $89 billion. We'll see what the Apostle Paul was worth as we go along here a little bit. He understands this principle. This is why we read verses 19 through 16 and we wonder... What in the world does all of this have to do with the rewards of disciple-making? It doesn't sound very rewarding, does it? Is Paul just grumbling? Is he just complaining here? Is he blowing off steam and expressing his frustration to a sympathetic ear? It seems to me that verses 9 through 16 of this passage are not here for Paul's sake. They're, they're here for Timothy's sake, and they're here for, for our sake. After such a long life following Jesus, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, Paul, he's intimately acquainted with all the associated costs, with all the associated risk of being a follower of Jesus. And the last thing Paul wants is for Timothy to be unaware of all that might happen as a result of his following Jesus and his making disciples and his shepherding the flock at at Ephesus. So what are these risks? What, what, are, what are the costs that he lists off for Timothy? Verse 10, Demas, in love with the world, this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So, so what we have here is we have a co-laborer in the ministry who walks away from Jesus. Is there anything more heartbreaking than someone who walked with the Lord who labored in the fields, and before he finishes his race, turns away. Some of you might know that same heartbreak and anguish. I know I do. Some of us may know it with our siblings. Some of us may know it with our children. Following Jesus and walking away. It goes on, verse 10, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, and his sorrow here I don't think is because of apostasy. They haven't turned their back on the faith, but it's simply because these beloved believers and co-laborers are now removed by distance. These who are once there helping Paul in this ministry, they're not there with him anymore. And so any of you who've ever relocated or, or made a move, moved from one church or moved away from your family and your friends, you know what that's like to have distance separating you. And Paul didn't have the advantage of FaceTime. If you wanted to correspond with these beloved friends, it would be through letters that would be carried by people across vast distances and over the course of weeks and sometimes months, depending upon the season and the weather. Verses 11 and 12, Paul says, Luke alone is with me, and Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. So, so Paul, knowing the need of his beloved church in Ephesus, has sent Tychicus to them for their sake. Even though it's, it's like a, an arm is being lopped off Paul, he has sent Tychicus to this beloved church because he's calling Timothy back to him, and they're going to need a shepherd in Timothy's absence. And now, since Tychicus is on, gone, Dr. Luke is the only one left with Paul. 
And bear in mind where Paul is at this point. Paul's not staying at the Hilton. Paul's in, in Rome. He's in, he's in the Mamertine prison, most likely. And this is how the Mamertine prison was described by a, a pagan Roman historian named Sallust. So this is not, he, he's not exaggerating. He's not, not a Christian who's exaggerating the situation to try and gain sympathy for Christians who might be in prison there. The Mamertine prison, Sallust describes it as a house of darkness. Its neglect, darkness, and stench give it a hideous and terrifying appearance. And so, so the roof, you know, I, I'm not a tall chap, but I couldn't stand up right in the Mamertine prison in the lower level where Paul was most likely held. So, so an existence stooped over in the dark, in filth, in squalor, and stench. This is, this is Paul, and all his comfort and all his consolation is, is gone, except for Dr. Luke. He goes on in verse 14, he, he tells Timothy that Alexander the coppersmith, he did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. We, we, we don't know for certain who Alexander is. He may be the Alexander who was excommunicated from the church at Ephesus in 1 Timothy. He might be from Troas. And we don't even know the circumstances of the harm that he brought Paul. This is the only time this, this occasion is mentioned in the Bible. But it must have been significant if Paul lumps it in here with the rest. Right? If he lumps it in with Tychicus being gone and with Demas walking away from the faith. And by the way, Alexander the coppersmith, great harm. Verse 16, Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Paul has most likely been charged with hating mankind. That's, a, that's an offense, a criminal offense in the Roman judicial system. And he would be charged with hating mankind because he was unwilling to participate in, in the pagan Roman religion of the day and in the culture. He, he would not proclaim Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. Instead, he would proclaim Yesu Curios, Jesus is Lord, and thus he hated mankind in the eyes of Rome. He had his first appearance there before the magistrates, and, and he's all alone. No one's there with him. No one is by his side. He has no comfort. He has no solidarity. And you and I, I think we probably know how much easier it is to remain firm when someone stands beside us and with us, whether it's in a court of law or whether it's regarding a particular situation at work where there is an ethical dilemma. Even as parents, right, we know it's easier to stand firm. That's why kids, what do they do? They go ask mom, and then if mom says no, what do they do then? They go ask dad. But, it, but if mom and dad stand firm, then the kids, they stop all their shenanigans. Well, maybe. I don't, I don't know. Hopefully they don't. Maybe they don't. But it's always easier to stand strong when there's someone who's there standing with you. So all of these are the reasons that he's written to Timothy. What does he write to Timothy in verse 9? Do your best to come to me soon. There's a sense of urgency in Paul's request. It's, his request is not, come and see beautiful Rome on your next vacation, and I've got a place you can crash. That's not what he says to Timothy. He doesn't say to Timothy, you know, let, let's get lunch when it's convenient for you. No, he says, come soon, Timothy. I'm lonely. Come soon, Timothy. I, I miss you. Come soon, Timothy. I need my cloak, and winter is coming. 
Come soon, Timothy. I need my books. I need my, my parchments. Come to, soon, Timothy, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Come soon, Timothy. I'm about to die. Knowing that he was staring death in the face, Paul is earnest to see his beloved Timothy, but he's also just as earnest to continue his gospel ministry. What does he do? He asks Timothy to bring John Mark in verse 11. This is the John Mark that caused the, the split between Paul and, and Barnabas back in Acts. And so what was once a point of pain and sorrow for Paul, this, this broken relationship with Barnabas and with John Mark is now a cause for rejoicing. But bring him because he's useful for me in the ministry. What else does he say to Timothy? Bring my cloak and bring my books and bring above all the parchments. These books are most likely his writing utensils, paper and pen, so that he could continue these letters to the churches that he used in, in making disciples in far-off places. And, and these parchments, oh, this is the Bible. This is the Word of God. These are his copies of, of the Old Testament that sustained Paul, that he feasted on throughout his entire life. These, these words of life that brought him from being a son of darkness into a son of light and from having a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. It's the word of God which was applied there on that road to Damascus when the Lord appeared to him. Bring me the parchments. Bring me the word of God. Even in the face of certain death, Paul is consumed with his ministry to the church, with pouring into others what has been poured into him. He is not easing his way into eternity. So the first thing Paul does here for Timothy is he, he kind of gives him a lesson in risk management. He wants Timothy to, to know with eyes wide open of what life following Jesus may very well look like for him. Second thing that Paul does is he, he redefines risk. Paul not only wants Timothy to know what he's getting into with this whole following Jesus thing, but it is obvious that Paul's understanding of risk is foreign to our own. The gospel takes a worldly, earthly understanding of risk, and it turns it on its head. Here's how, here's how Mr. Webster, Brother Webster, we might say, defined risk. Risk is the possibility of loss or injury. Peril. It is someone or something that creates or suggests a hazard. So risks are those things that imperil us and have the potential to cause us loss. Well, what is risk according to the Bible? Let's see what the Bible says about risk and how I think the Apostle Paul would have understood risk. One of the first things that Paul would have considered to be risk is disqualification talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. Paul says this, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And oh, it seems week in and week out, what do we find? We find men who have been disqualified. And it is heartbreaking. And it is tragic that those who would stand up and would open the word of God would find themselves disqualified from ministry, at least. So this is reason for you all, and I beg of you, pray earnestly for your pastors. 
lest we find ourselves one day disqualified. That's risk. Standing up and proclaiming the word of God and finding yourself disqualified after the fact because you didn't measure up. What else is risk? Paul says that loving this present world is risk when he talks about Demas. Having our heart and our affection set on this passing world, that's risky. When we take our eyes off Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. John talks about some risks in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He speaks of those who went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out so that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What's the great risk in that? The great risk is this, that, that there are some of us here today in this place. Maybe today's your first time. Maybe you're here week in and week out. The great risk is that some of you are going to walk out from among us because you were not of us to begin with. That's a risk. Turning your back on Jesus, walking away from his blood shed for you. The last risk we'll look at today. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 36, Jesus talks about risks. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his that is risk. And so it begs the question of us, we who claim to be followers of Jesus, are we carrying our cross? Are we denying ourselves? Are we pursuing holiness and righteousness? Are we pursuing this world at the peril of our soul? We might find ourselves having passed into eternity and, and standing before the judgment seat of Christ and we hold up all the riches of this world to him. Look at everything I accomplished, Jesus. And what is Jesus' response? Depart from me, for I did not know you. That is risk. Paul redefines what risk is. Is Risk in the Bible has nothing to do with our savings account or a secure income, the safety of our children, or our retirement. The great risk in the Bible is that we put our hand to the plow and then we look back. For those who put their hand to the plow and look back, Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, they have shown themselves to be unfit for the kingdom of God. That is risk. Well, as we talk about risk management, we also need to consider our return on our investment. That's a thing, right? I don't really know much about that, at least in terms of finances. What is return on investment? It's, it's what you reap from, from what it is that you have invested in various enterprises. And as we look at in return on investment, there are certainly temporal rewards. There are earthly rewards in this 
life. And Paul hints at some in this passage. One of the great rewards, I think, in Paul's life is Timothy. Flip back a page and look at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. And just listen and read how affectionately Paul talks about Timothy. I thank God whom I serve, as I did my ancestors with a clear conscience. I thank God as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed. Do you, do you hear? Can you? It's almost... It's almost palpable, intangible, that you can feel the affection that Paul has for, for Timothy, this, this beloved child in the Lord. That's a great reward for Paul of being a disciple who makes disciples. He lists others, Priscilla and Aquila and Onesiphorus, Ephesus, the churches. I mean, all, if you have time this afternoon, when you have time, you have time this afternoon, Go and look at how Paul greets all the churches that he writes letters to. And just imagine and feel the love that flows out of his hearts towards them. So these are all great rewards in this life that Paul enjoyed as he made disciples of Jesus. And maybe John Mark is, is unique because John Mark is the one where there was once a broken, fractured relationship. And now, by God's grace, that relationship is restored and is flourishing. So there are temporal rewards to, to bear in mind as we consider our return on investment in making disciples of Jesus. But Paul also makes the point that risk is reward. He's already redefined risk, and he's taken it out of loss of, of material possessions and said, no, risk is losing your soul. But now he shows us that risk is indeed reward when we're following Jesus. Paul, in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, he's just been stoned by the Jews. And he turns to the disciples, and to encourage them, this is what he says. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Galatians 6, verse 2, we're commanded by Paul to, to bear one another's Burdens In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, we're told, in our afflictions and through our afflictions, through our suffering, to comfort one another. Isn't that beautiful how God redeems even the, the suffering in our lives so that we can serve and minister to those who are suffering around us? 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Paul, once again, encouraging the church. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us, what? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. In Philippians chapter 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And Paul's aim in Philippians 3 is to know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
so that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul, he, he really, he, he's telling us that, that everything that the world says is risk, suffering, sorrow, heartache, and anguish, all of that when it's done for Jesus is reward. Even being like him in his death is reward for those of us who are children of God. D don't buy into the idea that you can have the crown without the cross. Jesus didn't buy into that idea. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. What are the apostles doing? They're sleeping, right? Ever faithful, right? They're sleeping. And what is Jesus doing? He's, he's saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What is the cup? It's not, it's not being nailed to a cross, but it's the cup of the wrath of God being poured out on him, his wrath against and as he prays this, he's, he's sweating great drops of blood. So great is his anguish. Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew there was no crown without the cross. So let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we deserve anything more than Jesus Risk for the sake of the gospel, risk in making disciples, is never risk. It's reward. Then, of course, we have the, the eternal reward. And this is, I think, really the, the thrust and the focus of Paul's instruction to Timothy here. Verse 17, you can look again. Paul, he's left alone in his first defense. There's no one by his side, but he's able to say with confidence, what, the Lord stood by me. The Lord strengthened me. And though, though all his earthly friends had seemingly vanished in the presence of, of Rome and of its judiciary, the Lord stands by, not just in solidarity, though. The Lord stands by so that, Paul says, through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. So, so Paul here at this moment, he's, he's spared death. He gets to go back to the Hilton and have a little more time in his accommodations so that this gospel may be fully proclaimed to these pagans, to these Gentiles, to these people who are far off from God, to those who are trying to put him to death. And he looks forward now to the Lord rescuing him again. He's been delivered once, and he looks forward to the Lord's deliverance yet again, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What is the great reward towards which Paul has aimed his life and his ministry? He has fixed his eyes on his great king who will deliver him safely into his kingdom. This king who will deliver his servants from death through death. Have you considered death? I remember R.C. Sproul one time saying towards the end of his life that he wasn't afraid of death. He was afraid of dying. 
because he, he didn't know what it would look like, what it would feel like, what the circumstances of his death would be. Paul here in the Mamertine prison, what is his attitude? It's an attitude of confidence. It's an attitude of joy. It's an attitude of, of rejoicing, even in the sorrows of this life. Paul, he is certain and he is sure that this king will bring him safely into his kingdom. That, my friends, is the great reward of making disciples of Jesus. Knowing that this same Jesus will bring his people safely into his kingdom. Through all the circumstances of life, through all the tragedy, through all the joy, through all the muck and the mire, from the lowest of valleys to the highest of mountain peaks, Jesus' promise stands secure that he will bring his people safely into his kingdom. That's why David sang, and that's why Paul sang, and that's why we can sing, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Here's the main point, I think, of this passage. Being a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples of Jesus is fraught with physical danger, suffering, risk, and heartache, but the rewards far exceed any amount of risk the endeavor requires. For all that it may cost us to make followers of Jesus, the rewards in this life and at the end of this life will cause all that risk to pale in comparison to the glory that will be ours when our Savior Jesus Christ is revealed to us again. Well, what does this mean for us? I mean, yeah, that's, that's good. What's the application? Maybe some of you are here today and, and you're inquirers. You just, you, you, you've been in church or you're, you're familiar with the church or you don't know anything about the church. Maybe you're wondering what this whole church thing is or what this whole gospel thing is. Maybe you have an idea of the church uh, from your youth or from a distant relationship and maybe it's not a very good picture of the church. Maybe you've seen church people and church people don't really want to make you a Jesus person. Well, let me tell you this. Church people, we should be the first to admit that we are messed up and we are messing up. We're, we're sometimes are, are not the kind of people that non-church people want to be that or want to be with. And, and for that, we're sorry. But please don't judge the perfect Christ and his perfect word by his imperfect people. We're being sanctified as we go through this life. We're being made more like Jesus. Instead, pursue, inquire, ask questions. Be like Jacob and don't let go of the Lord until he blesses you. And though you may come up limping like he did, know like Jacob that it is totally worth it to walk through this life with a limp. What about those of us who are churchy? 
we often run the risk of confusing the rewards. And we have our eyes focused on this world and the rewards that it may give. And they may be good things. Having our children grow up to love the Lord, I mean, that's a great reward. I'm not knocking it. Pouring into the lives of of people so that they're more like Jesus and they love his church and they love his word and they labor for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the law. Yeah, that's good and that's important. But we're not called to fix our eyes on our children. We're not called to fix our eyes on Christ's church. We're called to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we'll make it all the way home. So don't confuse the rewards. If we confuse the rewards, church, we confuse the gospel. We take our eye off the prize, then our message becomes distorted and muddled. Then our message becomes, have your best life now. I had to take a shot at him, right? Like I do every, every time. We have some type of prosperity, false gospel that says that you're sick because you don't have enough That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you have a God who loves you and you you have a Christ who died for you. And through sickness and sorrow and suffering, even if you're in the Rome Rome Hilton like Paul, this Christ is going to carry you all the way home to glory. Jesus did not die for respectability, well-behaved children, a good marriage, and a semi-comfortable retirement. Jesus died so that he would have a people for his own glory. So let's fix our eyes on our Christ and on those rewards. To those of you who who are maybe less churchy and more church, when we've grasped the call of our Lord Jesus to make disciples, and and the extraordinary things of which we've read and heard, all, all the the miraculous movements of God in the early church and even in the mission field today, then then those things, they make sense to us. The reason we think that they're weird is because we've taken our eyes off the prize. It's because we thought that somehow we can build Christ's church through our own machinations, through our own schemes, through our own plans. But no, Christ has said, I will build my church, and he will build his church by his word and by his spirit. So church, Let's be certain that our life together and our ministry and our service and our evangelism and our disciple-making is centered on the Word of God and is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And then we can be certain that Christ will be honored and glorified in his people here at Boone Trail. Don't be distracted. Don't be pulled away by all the flash and by all the pomp and by all the pageantry. Instead, let's get the, the basic things right and trust Jesus to do what he has promised. That he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If that's our focus, we can be like the Apostle Paul, imprisoned, tortured, abandoned, alone, destitute, and executed. And through all of the risk, we can glory in our Savior. So many people are wandering around this world looking for something to give their life meaning. Maybe it's feeding the poor, maybe it's saving the whales or the trees or... (laughs) I mean, there are all these things that we can give our life to to give them meaning. 
But all of these things are one day going to pass away. We don't want to pour our lives out for temporal rewards. We want to pour our lives out for that reward which is lasting and which is eternal. We want to pour our lives out so that at the end of our course, Jesus would look upon us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to pour out our lives and orient our lives so that we can be like the Apostle Paul and say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. And then you know what we're going to do with those crowns, church? We're not going to customize them. We're not going to make sure, get, get them fitted. We're going to take those crowns and we're going to cast them at the feet of our Savior, Jesus Christ, because he alone is worthy of all the glory and the honor that we have to give and we have to bring. Let's pray. Our Father, would you, would you bring life to our hearts which are so often weary, which are filled with sorrow, which are so often turned and fixed on temporal passing things. And would you turn our hearts towards our Savior, Jesus? Would you help us to see what this world considers to be risk as our great reward? Would you help us, like, like the Apostle Paul, to desire, to so desire Christ that, that we want to be like him in his suffering, even identifying with him in his death, so that by any means possible, we too might attain the resurrection of the dead. Oh, Spirit, give us eyes to see and to understand your word. Give us hands that freely give away all that this life has to offer so that we might be found in Jesus with a righteousness, not of our own, but instead with his righteousness. And as we go through this life, pouring out our investment, knowing the return that is ours, would you cause us to go through this life joyfully suffering and serving for the sake of our Savior who so joyfully and willingly suffered for us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. We're going to turn now as we do to a time of response. And Stephen's going to be up here. If you have questions about the gospel, the good news about why in the world God would come to earth to die, or if you have questions about what life and ministry at Boone Trail look like, Stephen would love to begin a conversation with you about that this morning. And as we sing, we're going to sing the words of a hymn that's familiar to most of you, Holy, Holy, Holy. As we sing, don't just sing, but engage your mind and engage your hearts and consider the words that are coming out of your mouth and what they mean for you and for me. Let's, let's stand together.